All right, let's get going. Welcome to Dispatch Live on February 14th, special edition here. Uh, I am Adam O'Neill, the executive editor of the Dispatch. Uh, soon to be, we're, we're working out a new name. We're actually a bit of a shift. We're trying to focus purely on balloon coverage from here on out. So, well, well, you know, I mean, I think we've changed the morning dispatch to the balloon dispatch. That's official, right, Esther? Oh, Correct. Way, Esther, yes. That's Esther Eaton, our uh, deputy morning, or sorry, balloon dispatch editor. We also thank have, you. Uh, Good Chief, catch. Chief balloon correspondent Price St. Clair with us. Uh, and if you haven't already guessed. We will be talking about UFOs today. Uh, there's plenty of other stuff coming up later in the hour. We'll have the Dispatch Politics team on uh, to discuss 2024, everything else. But for now, we're going to do a little balloon talk. So, um, Price, you've got a piece coming out tomorrow, a great explainer about what's happened. Esther, you had another uh, great TMD item. Uh, it's actually not the Balloon Dispatch. Uh, just so we're clear, I don't know, some maybe some folks in the comments didn't know, uh, but <laughs> you can never be too sure. Uh, but really, look, um, I know everybody is talking about this, but why don't we just start out, Esther, why don't we kind of just fill everybody in quickly? What's going on with, you know, the flying object of the day or the flying object of the week? Or is the invasion beginning? Is this aliens? Are we shooting down? Uh, gender reveals gone wrong, floating away into the sky. What, what's happening? You know, that is the question of the hour. We definitely know that we're shooting down a lot of things. So after the original Chinese surveillance balloon that we all got to watch proceeding gently across the country, we had on Friday, something got shot down uh, on off the waters of Alaska. And then on Saturday over Yukon territory in Canada, which borders Alaska. And then Sunday uh, over Lake Huron, which actually took two shots to hit. So we're told that the first Sidewinder missile landed in Lake Huron, which means some fish presumably got the surprise of their life. So we've shot down three things and recovery operations are underway. But Unlike the gentle, temperate waters of South Carolina, they have landed in, you know, some chilly, tough areas. So the recovery operations are slightly more challenging, and we still don't have a lot of details about what they are. There's a lot of theories, but as yet, not a lot of fact on that. All right, so that's helpful about what we do know. But Price, um, what do we not know? What, what are the big questions that all of this is raising? And I know a little sneak preview for our members who are on the call today. You kind of get into this in your explainer, which will be published tomorrow. But what, what, what's the mystery? Uh, we're just shooting some balloons down, right? What's the big deal? Yeah. Um, no, you're right. It is, uh, it is very confusing. And in fact, uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, who's always one to make some funny quips he said told reporters today in the capitol if you're if you are confused you understand the story perfectly so as esther said there are a lot of theories <laughs> the things that we main things we don't know is what these objects are and where they came from now people can engage in some sort of educated speculation like the government has come out and said these are not alien craft we're not being invaded um but like we don't know if they're from a foreign country or if they originated in the U.S. They could be commercial or or, or research aircraft that are American or Canadian, um, but they could have come from a foreign country. 
Um, you know, we're not sure exactly how they're propelled. Could be some sort of drone variety of things it could be. Uh, but we don't we don't know the origin and we don't know, you know, exactly what kind of objects these are. And, uh, you know, senators and representatives in uh, both chambers of Congress were briefed today and they came out of those briefings and said, we still don't really know the answers to those questions. Um, so a lot more you could get into there. But so it could it really could be anything. I think I think I saw one description was it's an octagonal object. One of them. Is that right? I saw yeah. One of them. Right. Another one uh, does, was described as cylindrical. So we have all the fun geometric shapes being proposed here. Right. And I don't I don't want to be a party pooper. It's it's Valentine's Day. But if you're uh, one of our listeners and you were planning on taking your significant other out on a romantic hot air balloon ride tonight, uh, reconsider those plans, I would suggest. Is that is that a fair assumption? Or if you have a hot air balloon, is there a risk that you will be shot out of the sky? Well, open, I'm going to say probably not. Oh, okay, probably not. Right. So this, <laughs> this is actually one of the distinctions uh, John Kirby at the White House would make between uh, between the Chinese spy balloon was at a higher altitude than commercial flights, whereas these other objects that were shot down were were in the flight path. And I believe hot air balloons, typically, well, I don't know. I've been in a hot air balloon once in my life, and it was tethered to the ground. It, it did not enter commercial airspace. So. Okay, yeah. I mean, if you're in a hot air balloon and it's 60,000 feet in the air, like the Chinese spy balloon, you probably have bigger problems than a Sidewinder missile in your life. Um, not that you won't have problems. That's certainly uh, the case. But all right. Well, look, um, is is there any reason given why we haven't been able to find the remnants of the objects? I understand you were saying earlier, Esther, that weather's bad, but I don't know. I, I feel like we have a trillion dollar military for a reason and that it's a little cold or it's a little remote out in the Yukon, but it seems like the kind of thing we should probably be on top of. No, I think a lot of people are wondering that. I think that's a fair question. I got to say, I, I'm not up on, you know, what exact recovery timing we should be demanding of our armed forces uh, when it comes to venturing out on the sea ice to retrieve a possible balloon. So I guess I'm inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, this isn't a mission that I would have had a plan locked and loaded for. On the other hand, you know, maybe they had a balloon recovery team that's been on ice for a decade and this was their shining moment and they're bungling it. I, I just, I guess I would say I'm inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I, I don't know how much detail they will reveal as they do recover this. Um, so it's hard to say what we'll ever know. I know Kirby said today that uh, the leading theory is that these are essentially some sort of commercial or research drone gone awry or balloon, um, as opposed to foreign surveillance. And he also said that we've ruled out a U.S. government object. He didn't give a lot of reasons for that assessment, but that's kind of the update that he provided. So that that's very helpful. Thank, thank you, Esther. And uh, a bigger, a bigger picture question because I know we're having, we've had a lot of uh, fun with this in editorial meetings and uh, mm -hmm. just in the office for the people who have to endure my comedic stylings as I bounce around uh, different desks and talk to you about what stories you're working on. But really, I mean, look, we're the dispatch. We want to cover important stories. We don't want to just give you, give you guys, our members, the kind of stuff you'll find on Instagram for clickbait or anything like that. And that's not why we're talking about the balloon, right? What we're talking about is what could be a serious issue, right? I think that a lot of Americans saw these balloons 
And they said, wow, like what if the Chinese put a nuclear weapon on that or an EMP or some kind of thing that would devastate America? And I think that's why it struck a chord with so many people who realized, wow, America, this isn't going to be World War II if there's a conflict. People can touch us this time in a way that they couldn't in previous conflicts. Mm-hmm. So uh, I sort of answered my own question there, but uh, for both of you guys, what are the real world implications or why should you care or not care about this story? Brass tacks. Um, I will. So our dispatch live uh, members will not be surprised to learn that Klon Kitchen uh, is a helpful person to talk to for this. And he's one of the people I talked to for this explainer. Um, and he raised some important questions um, that sort of have to do with what you just mentioned, Adam, about preparedness. And that's sort of the two main options here, based off how the story has unfolded so far, is either that the the federal government is genuinely as confused and and have a lack of knowledge as as it seems, or they know more than they're telling us, and sort which they may have very good reason to do, sort of keeping strategic secrets to, um, you know, prevent. Again, this is all hypothetical. Prevent U.S.-China relations from totally, you know being scuttled. Um, but neither of those options is great, either being totally clueless and lost or in a diplomatic situation so severe that you're, uh, you know, trying to be uh, playing hide and seek uh, with with the story, as, as Klan said. So um, we don't really know which one of those it is, but um, it is something to pay attention to going forward. Do you have any, uh, anything to add there, Esther? Yeah, I would just say what struck me as I was reporting this story was just what we rely on NORAD to do, which is the joint uh, Canadian and U.S. sort of the biggest thing they do is watch out for incoming ICBMs or, you know, Russian bombers. Right. It's their job to prevent us from getting nuked. Essentially, they do other stuff, too. But their focus on that, their rightful focus on that seems to be part of why they just weren't looking for this kind of stuff. And so. Once they started looking for it, then suddenly they're seeing them left, right, and center. And so, as it always is, when something surprising happens, the question is, okay, what's the next surprise that we're not looking for yet? So these don't seem to have been a military threat, but as ever, I think they have once again opened leaders' minds to the unknown unknown. We, we've, we've, got, we've got a great question here from Phil Harris and I defer to either of you. Um, I know you guys have both been following this closely, but is anyone at the Department of Defense who's talking or who you guys might have talked to think there's a serious national security problem here? Or is this more of a uh, a PR issue for the administration? Because if I recall correctly, they didn't necessarily want to make this public until, of course, people in, in the U.S. just looked up and were like, oh, what's that gigantic balloon doing? Um, is there is there uh, is the administration acknowledging that yes we have a national security vulnerability so, uh, sort of akin to what Esther was describing a second ago, or is are they more in playing it down mode and trying to calm people down more than deal with the issue? 
I'll say my thought on that is, of course, they're always going to be in calm people down mode and you never want to play up a security vulnerability, whatever it may be. So in that regard, you know, you just got to assume that, yeah, if we have a problem, they're not going to want to be as upfront about it as possible. But I do think that at the same time, you know, you hear them over the weekend saying these aren't a kinetic threat. We don't know what they are. We're not going to accuse anyone of them. So I think there is also a genuine level of them trying to present an abundance of caution. And I suppose uh, whether you think they should be more alarmed than they are is up to you. But I think it is a little bit of a mix where they're concerned and they're trying to be proactive. And they're also trying to say, hey, we are able to shoot these down when we decide to. Yeah, I think um, Esther is right. Um, But I guess what I would add is um, just to give the administration a little bit of a benefit, the benefit, benefit of the doubt. I'll take them at their word that the Chinese balloon is sort of a separate thing from these other three. They're connected in some sense because of the radar. Now we're paying more attention to these slow moving objects piece. Uh, but like they were upfront about these three that they shot down as soon as each of those things happened. Um, and then, yeah, again, like our, the, the as Klein emphasized to me, there are good reasons for the government to keep secrets. But even when they are there, they have a responsibility to communicate clearly to the public about what they do and don't know, and that they are dealing with a crisis potential vulnerability or crisis situation responsibly. Um, and that their their performance in that regard with this story has left left some stuff uh, to be desired. Well, look, uh, as long as this story is floating around, I'm sure we're going to be talking about it um, and making horrible puns about it, uh, like I just did. Uh, but, but really, guys, thanks for coming on. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts or anything, but I know you'll be uh, on top of this until the, the story finally deflates and we can move on. But until that point, uh, we're just going to have to keep following it. Thank you. <laughs> keep following it, keep reporting, and uh, see where it goes from here. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Uh, next up, we're going to have the dispatch politics team uh, joining us, and they'll be coming on just about any second now. We uh, putting that together. How's that looking? We're doing all our adjustments in real time. Hello, is this thing on? Uh, I can see you, Andrew. Can you, you hear uh, me? Audrey, great. Are we good? Uh, oh, David Drucker, Audrey Falberg, David M. Drucker, Audrey Falberg, and Andrew Egger, uh, and Mr. Drucker coming to us from South Carolina. What are, what are you having to, to drink there, sir? Negroni. Nice. Well, the, the classic South Carolina beverage, Negroni, it's right? Great for all seasons and all campaigns. Well, let's let's just jump straight into it. Look, we're gonna we're gonna do a little twenty twenty four talk. We're gonna do a little twenty twenty four presidential and senate. But big news of today: Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador, former South Carolina governor, running for president. Um, and you'll be down there to to cover the the formal launch. We got a video. We got an announcement today. Uh, David, fill us in. I, what does this mean for twenty twenty four? Well, look, I mean. The first thing it means is that Donald Trump finally has an actual opponent, not somebody who's thinking about it, testing the waters, 
um, you know, delicately dancing around it. So she's a presidential candidate, as you mentioned, uh, announced officially today. I think she was looking for a two day bump that helps with fundraising. She might have wanted to get ahead of uh, Mike Pence, who will be in Iowa on Wednesday, and Tim Scott, the South Carolina senator, who's going to be um, kicking off his soft launch. What we're talking about is his soft launch for the presidency on Thursday evening. Um, you know, Nikki Haley has a lot of innate political talent that you cannot teach. And yet in the, I don't want to say post-Trump era, but in the aftermath of the Trump presidency, she's had a hard time sticking the landing as to whether she thinks the country needs to move on from Donald Trump or thinks the Republican Party at the very least should stick with Donald Trump. As many people may remember, she said uh, not long after Trump left office that if he ran, she would not. She started to distance herself from that over time and is now going to be the first candidate to get in other than him with a rally in Charleston, South Carolina, where I am. Um, and it's I, I think I expected to have all the production bells and whistles you would expect from a slick campaign. And then we'll see if this thing can take off. Um, on the one hand, she has to find I don't want to use the word lane because this thing is either about winning or losing, but she has to find some enthusiasm and a constituency within the party. On the other hand, she has probably the most developed political operation of any of the potential candidates. She has a political nonprofit, a 501c4. She has a political action committee. She's got staff. This thing is a turnkey operation. It's been ready to go for quite a while. And she, um, she's been preparing. So now the rubber meets the road and we'll see what voters think. And it, from the polling, it would seem that voters are not super enthusiastic, but at the same time, just about anyone who ended up becoming president at some point, the polling wasn't great. Right. And if you're my, uh, my, my sorry, favorite just, example, Adam, um, you know, Trump is this weird anomaly of a candidate. Even his polling wasn't that great till he was actually in. But I, I like the comparison to Ted Cruz in 2016, right? He gets into the race in, in the spring of 2015. Um, and he starts at 5%. And I remember at the time, um, he had a very solid campaign put together. He had a plan. They executed but initially at 5%, a lot of people said, well, here's the guy that's supposed to be the candidate of the Republican base. Here's the guy that has been doing everything he can possibly conceive of to entice the Republican base and committed Republican primary voters to support him. And he enters the campaign at a measly 5%. But he ends up winning the Iowa caucuses and is the runner up for the nomination behind Trump winning more delegates than anybody other than Trump. And all this is to say, a campaign is like a game, a football game, a basketball game. Everybody starts with zero, or at least some people start with zero points. Uh, maybe some people get lucky and they get a phantom holding call that helps them win. Uh, but let's keep but, that in the company slack, okay? We don't need to bring <laughs> this strife out into public. Fair enough. And I, by the way, I don't even like Philly, so what do I care? Um, but there's a reason why you campaign. So now you have a campaign, you start to take your case to the voters and you see if you can garner their support. A lot of candidates have started low and finished high. Nikki Haley, after, after her Wednesday event in Charleston, South Carolina, which is an early state, will head to New Hampshire, an early state, will then head to Iowa, an early state. And 
you know, we'll see if she can raise the money to sustain this and keep it going, uh, at least into the first round of debates for the, the Republican nomination, which the Republican National Committee is expected to set for either July or August or somewhere around there. We've, we've got a question from a, a couple of um, members, and Andrew, maybe maybe you can tackle this. I know you've uh, covered Governor DeSantis. I, what's what's the apparent nickname? Meatball Ron or something is, is Trump's new. DeSanctimonious didn't land, so maybe they're, they're workshopping that. But uh, <laughs> someone's asking, is there any Republican candidate besides DeSantis who can outpull Trump? Uh, people seem to be skeptical that Haley can pull it off. Is she running for vice president um, or is it just too early to tell? Is this just is this another Haley, a Tim Scott? We'll talk about him in a minute. Once these people start to jump in, does that splinter the field? I know um, Ola Pundit, also known as Nick Atogio, talked about it today in his newsletter. But do we run the risk, Andrew, of um, there being a clear majority against Trump, but a plurality for him with so uh, candidates like Haley jumping in? So the, the two questions there, one, is there any other single person other than DeSantis who seems likely to be able to seems likely to be the one to catch fire and and uh, and, and and catch that energy and be the guy? The short answer to that is no. Um, there's a whole lot of p- possible third placers. And as I think we've talked about before, that's kind of an important place to be because both Trump and DeSantis, uh, there are going to be people who could theoretically be a vice presidential pick to either of them. Right. Um, but also, uh, you know just because nobody's caught fire yet, they still have to play the game. As David was saying, you know, it's totally plausible. Somebody catches fire, makes a bit of a run. Um, you, you, you just never know. But as far as, you know, Haley or Tim Scott or Mike Pompeo or Chris Sununu or Mike Pence, I mean, this, the, the Asa Hutchinson, uh, Larry Hogan, the list of, of, of potential, uh, kind of, uh, uh, pot splitters is long and growing. Um, I don't even remember the name of the man who was in the lead story on Politico yesterday. The uh, the, the the billionaire anti woke guy who was in Iowa this week. I should remember his name, I but I don't. Senti- I think he's a thirty seven years old and money to burn. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. But it, it's, it's turning into that long. sort of thing. So at, at the same time, um, the fact that it is not a single contest. Uh, is going to be important. I think in 2016, I think a lot of Republicans are still burned from the fact that everybody assumed Trump would flame out and assumed Trump would flame out and assumed Trump would flame out. And by the time they finally got it through their heads, all the other candidates that he was there to stay and he was the guy to beat, it was far too late to stop his momentum. Um, John Kasich and Ted Cruz's kind of personal animosity toward one another was kind of the final nail in the coffin there, uh, where, where, where Kasich just stuck in the race and stuck in the race and stuck in the race and didn't drop out until the second after Ted Cruz did. Um, I think that that was, that is a moment that looms large for a lot of these candidates. Um, and I think you are at least likelier to see something like 2020 than something like 2016. And what happened in 2020, you'll remember is that the second that Joe Biden, uh, started showing a little bit of momentum with his win in his win in uh, South Carolina, you started to line up. Uh, uh, you, you had other candidates dropping out left, right and center because they didn't want to they did not want to see the nomination go to Bernie Sanders. Um, you had, you know, Amy Klobuchar very, very quickly dropped out. Pete Buttigieg very quickly dropped out. Um, and uh, uh, I I think that if you get a couple of primaries in and it's shaping up to be a two-horse race, it will actually become a two-horse race much more quickly this time around. At least that would be my hunch going into the thing. I think it's no. important to point out um, her how 
she's really the first test case of how um, high profile Republican challengers are going to handle the Trump question. So with her launch video today, um, she didn't take any, she obviously didn't mention Trump by name, but she did say, say that, you know, Republicans have lost seven out of the eight most recent popular votes in presidential elections. Obviously, Trump was two of those. Um, her launch video was, for the most part, pretty positive. She's tr clearly trying to say that she's the kind of person who can win over centrists and independents, which Republicans have really struggled with in recent years, um, down the ballot also. Um, but I, Noah Rothman raised an interesting point on the commentary podcast today about how, um, you know, as you mentioned, David, she um, two years ago said that she wouldn't run for president if Trump ran. She didn't mention that in her launch video today. She could have said something along the lines of, you know, I said I wasn't going to run, but, you know, the time demands new leadership. I'm not sure that would have been a smart move because it would have made the launch video about Trump. But she's going to have to answer those questions soon. And I think how she does it when reporters lob those questions at her, um, that's going to, you know, say a lot about her campaign. Look, and I think what's key for her and anybody else who gets in, and we are expecting other people to get in, is you have to take it straight to the front runner. For now, the front runner is Trump. At some point, it may be DeSantis. But if I think, you know, we've learned anything from, from 2016 and forward, is that what Republican primary voters want to see is a fighter. That's almost as important to them. In fact, it's probably more important to them than orthodoxy on all the key issues. You, you can't, can't dismiss Republican primary voters on issues like abortion and gun rights and taxes, right? These are just things that are expected of you. So what's going to set you apart? What do they really want in this era? They want somebody who's going to take the fight to everybody. Dopes like us, Democrats, Republicans, they don't like everybody. How do you prove that? by fighting your opponents in the primary. And if they dance around Trump, the way they danced around him in 2016, the way they've sort of run and hot, hid from him ever since, then what that's gonna tell Republican primary voters is Trump's still the biggest dog on the block because he's the biggest fighter on the block. So let's see if Nikki Haley can do it in her own way. Let's see if the other candidates that we expect to get in do it in their own way, because that's the only strategy that's going to work. In the end, it may not work for all sorts of reasons, but not doing it is guaranteed failure. No. On, that, on that note, I have a I have a question because while while Audrey, you're you're right that that uh, for the most part, the Nikki Haley video like focused on the positive. The, the line that stood out to me was uh, was sort of along the lines of what David was talking about just now, where, where she said, "You should know this about me: I don't put up with bullies, and when you kick back, it hurts them more when you're wearing heels." Um, and it's sort of neither here nor there, but I. I've spent like most of the afternoon wondering if that's actually true. Is it is it the case that that if you're getting kicked, uh, that 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 heels <laughs> put an exclamation point on it? I don't know. Great point, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew, for saving me from having the worst jokes of the night with the balloon puns. Uh, that was a very selfless act of you. It's, it's not really a joke. I, it's, it's it's been it's been thundering around my brain all afternoon, you know? I mean, it's like, it's a, it's, it's a, there's, you know, there's more puncture power, but less stability on the plant foot. So it's, I, I, I just don't know the answer. To, um, to, to bring this back to a slightly more dispatching view of things, the, the punditry is important because not the punditry is important, but the, the race, the political dynamics are important, how votes are added up, how, who occupies what lane, who can come out ahead in the primary. But there's also a policy question of what is Nikki Haley going to be advocating? 
She has a record as a reform governor in South Carolina. Uh, she is, I editorialized a little bit, uh, she has a record at the UN, which is generally a pretty useless institution in many cases, but she had advocated pretty clear... useless. <laughs> well, that's true. It's a, it's a little too gen. That's a little too generous to the UN, which is often actively harmful to uh, you know peace and the well-being of billions of people around the world. But what what is her? Uh, it's something that I think was totally missing from a lot of the coverage that I was reading today about Nikki Haley. They're talking about whether her video would be appealing, who she was appealing to, whether she could win, but what the hell is she running on? What what are the policies that she's going to voters around the country and saying, this is why you should pick me? Or is she not doing that? Is this purely a Obama-style, you know, we can talk about policy a little here and there, but what really matters is me and my biography. From from that perspective, what, what's Haley bringing to the table? Well, I, I think if you look at the um, opinion pieces she has written and the policies that her 501c4 Stand for America has promulgated over the past couple of years. She really is, in many respects, um, a Reagan era Republican. I mean, she has advocated for what we like to think of as Republican Party oriented, smaller government, freer trade, uh, less regulation. Her fiscal policies have not been populist, even though um, she has tried to ride this populist wave driving the Republican Party with various statements and tweets and things like that. Her foreign policy also, uh, to the extent she discusses it, has been Reagan-esque and that the U.S. should uh, be a global leader and should, should not shy away from confrontations around the globe. So I think then a really good question is, will she own it? Will she contrast herself with the populace in the Republican Party that have um, so much support among the base? Will she try and differentiate herself from other Republicans who favor using the state lately to uh, influence uh, the relationship between uh, businesses and the government who want to take more power away from uh, parents on the one hand, even as, even as they try to hand more power to parents on the other hand, when it comes to schools and social media and things like that, will she own it? Um, I think this is a big question for her because when you run for president, it may not work, but one way it definitely will not work is if you try to be all things to all people. And uh, we're just not in an era where that kind of thing works. Good points. Now, uh, let's talk very briefly. He hasn't announced that he's running yet, but there's another prominent uh, statewide elected official from South Carolina who looks like he's going to be, I mean, it's for federal office, but it's still a statewide office, uh, Senator Tim Scott. A, um, I believe, is he, the, uh, is he the junior or senior senator from South Carolina? I can't remember. He's been... No, uh, he's a junior. No, he's junior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lin Lindsey Graham's been there way longer, right? So, well, because anyway. Nikki Haley tapped him um, for uh, his Senate seat in twenty twenty in twenty twelve when Jim Dement left to uh, head the Heritage Foundation, which is kind of interesting. It's a fascinating dynamic that they'll both have to navigate. Yeah, it's a it kind of it's a little reminiscent of uh, Jeb and Marco in twenty sixteen, and a little like 
hey, kid, when you were just in the legislature, I was running the state. And now you want to go for the real top job against me? Like, yeah, wait a yeah. couple of years. But then um, also, yeah, Tim Scott is older than Haley. Um, right, right, it's also right. interesting. Yeah, there's no, there's no perfect analogy there. But um, what, uh, what does Tim Scott bring to this race? Uh, sort of similar to, to what we were just talking about, Nikki Haley. Audrey, what, what unique perspective or whether it's policy or narrative or story, what, what does Senator Scott bring to 2024? Well, he talks a lot about opportunity zones and education reform. Um, he's a very dynamic, charismatic person. I know David Drucker has talked to us a lot. Of, he's followed Tim Scott for a while, his political rise, and just how he really lights up a room and people really enjoy hearing him speak. Um, I think education is his biggest issue, but I think he kind of has a similar problem with Haley where it's not super clear what he stands for, but maybe I'm wrong there. There's also like a if, if if kind of if you squint, you could picture a kind of future of the Republican Party that he would uh, uh, kind of be be an important figurehead for if your future of the Republican Party is very conservative on a ton of issues, but evolving a little bit specifically on policing reform. Um, he's he uh, was really instrumental um, in in trying to strike uh, in in the wake of of George Floyd and all the protests. Um, trying uh, very, very hard that year to strike essentially a bipartisan deal um, with with some moderate Democrats for something that could actually pass both houses uh, in terms of in in terms of kind of curbing uh, uh, excesses in American policing. Um, I don't know whether whether Republican primary voters uh, kind of have that as their beau ideal of the future of the party is like everything the same, but like a little bit a little bit uh, more geared toward reining in uh, policing, but but you could see. I mean, like if 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 you're that kind of Republican, you could definitely see him as the kind of uh, the kind of person to pick up that torch and carry it ahead. Hey, here here's a, a a great question. I think you guys might have some insight as folks who have over the years dealt with or interviewed or interacted with both Haley and Scott um, from Nathaniel Healy. Are Haley and Scott the type of people to graciously bow out in favor of DeSantis if their candidacy was clearing the path for Trump? Um, or do you think that they're kind of the stubborn type? And this is sort of a subjective reading, but as reporters up close, kind of knowing these people better than just folks who see them on TV or read about them, do you think that they might you know, do the thing that they think is best for the country if it comes down to it and, and get out if it seems like it's just going to be Governor DeSantis? Usually, candidates clear the way when they run out of money and can no longer run. Now, th that's not really answering your question, right? Because the, the question was, would they get out of the way so that they wouldn't block a candidate who could otherwise beat Trump? But as long as you have enough money to stay in the race and run an effective campaign, what most candidates think is then I have enough money such that I might get to a place where I could win. Most of the reason that candidates get out of any campaign, particularly presidential primaries where there are many candidates, is that it's obvious that the delegate math is not adding up or that they're out of money or not or not in possession of enough resources to run the effective campaign that they wanted. And I think that 
it's hard to know exactly how Haley and Scott would react to this kind of a situation unless we kind of have a better idea of how they feel about, let's say, Governor Ron DeSantis or somebody else who could slide into the poll position as long as they get out of the way. Right. We might make assumptions about what they think. but We don't really know. And I think that you have to watch a campaign unfold to see how these candidates interact, to understand what the rivalries are so that we can understand whether they might want to get out of the way. And on that on that note, it's a great point. And I think it's it's an important point about the psychology of someone running for president, because you may everybody here, we might look at someone like the anti-woke guy who's running for president and think, oh, this is insane. This guy's never going to succeed. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking, that's been the story my entire life. No one thought I was going to make hundreds of millions of dollars in biotech. No one thought Nikki Haley was going to become governor of South Carolina. So when people are saying, there's no way you can become president, she's thinking, well, I've heard that 20 times before when I tried something new in life. And oh, and I've got a bunch of money to do it with, right? And that's well, the, the, the limiting factor. Yeah, not only that, Trump won the nomination in 2016 and people have been on that for the next 40 years. Well, you know, that crazy thing happened. Yeah. So how do you how, how can you tell me that my crazy thing can't happen? Right, right. And so it, on the donor question, though, uh, I think it would be safe to say that Governor uh, Bush, Jeb Bush in 2016 was the donor favorite to the extent that there is a, a donor favorite. I mean, a lot of people in 2016 raised a lot of money, but I just remember the, the first time Jeb put up his numbers, it was like you pass out kind of, you know, generational wealth just for his campaign that he basically lit it on fire. But is there someone, is that DeSantis in this race? Is that the guy that that's where all the money's going? I know, um, the uh, I know there there have been some prominent major donors um, just saying yeah we're with the Santas you know former Trump donors even uh, but is that where the money's going is that is that going to be the guy who's got the 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 momentum to keep this going or is there someone else who's kind of flying under the radar and good with donors that we should keep, be keeping an eye on Andrew take this one <laughs> well uh, I I, I I'm I am not, uh, I do not have encyclopedic knowledge of like kind of where all of the kind of plausible candidates, like as they're all launching their political organizations and going national for the first time, all that's happening right now. And I don't know for a fact, like which of them are, 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 are doing better than others. I will say that on the subject of DeSantis, he is in a very strong position in the sense that he raised a ton of money for his governor's race, not all of which he spent by a long shot. Um, I mean, he he's he's played very well uh, the the role of kind of being like a national uh, Republican hero while running a statewide race. I mean, if you can if you can do that right, uh, you're going to end up with a lot of cash on hand once you're done. Um, in fact, a few of a few Trump people have been kind of crying, crying foul about how much of that money he still has banked. They're like, hey, you're like all, all these Trump supporters 
we're giving to Ron DeSantis so we could win to be governor again. Now he's going to take all this money and plow it into a primary challenge against Donald Trump. Um, but there, uh, you, you, you've seen some weird splits already in the donor class. Obviously, some people are, some of the major donors are still sympathetic uh, to, to, to Trump. But um, I believe, and Drucker, correct me if I'm wrong about this, because because I know uh, there, there was a lot of coverage of of the the U lines, the the the, the major uh, husband and wife donor family who who split over the uh, over the RNC. Uh, nominating chair chairmanship nominating fight, but I believe uh, I, I forget which is which. Whether the husband's back, a husband's a Trump person and the wife's a DeSantis person, or vice versa. Um, but I think that's kind of em- emblematic of the emblematic of the fight right now is that is that you are you are you know seeing kind of a a, a, a re- reorganization of of the donor class, and a lot of them are for DeSantis. The one other thing about DeSantis is that. He is a huge part of the national conversation. He's going to be an enormous part of the presidential conversation, uh, no matter what. And he doesn't have to spend anything yet, you know, for the next six months or anything like that. So that helps a little bit. Yeah, not not only that, Audrey, you were with David McIntosh when the Club for Growth had uh, presented to reporters their theory of the case. Uh, They clearly are looking for an alternative to Trump and McIntosh. I mean, he likes to freelance a little bit, but he he's got donors to keep happy, right? So clearly, there's a there's a market for an anti or a an alternative to Trump among donors who otherwise are pretty friendly to conservative populists. Yeah, Club for Growth is interesting because they um, came out against Trump in 2016, and then of course when he won the nomination, they came they they supported him. Um, McIntosh has made clear that they're actively recruiting alternatives. Um, they have a donor retreat. I think it's next month, right? Um, they've invited Haley, Tim Scott, Pompeo, um, Glenn Youngkin, and DeSantis. Trump did not get an invite. They, of course, released a poll also showing DeSantis beating Trump in a head-to-head matchup, although it will, of course, not be a head-to-head matchup. <laughs> um, but clearly going after him really intensely. Um, so well, that'll be interesting to watch. And then, of course, the Coke. Um, I'm forget. I'm blanking on the name of the Coke group that is also trying to Americans um, for Prosperity, but the Coke network of political groups because it's more than AFP. Mm-hmm. They're also coming out hard against Trump. So something to watch. And it's worth pointing out too, like all of the dynamics we just talked about. Like, will will the various other candidates, like kind of out of the goodness of their heart and and uh, for the sake of the country, get out of the way and and let it be a head to head for Trump DeSantis? Those individual campaign campaign candidate incentives we talked about don't apply to the donors. Um, so, like if if the if there's like a, a a big surge in in kind of like the big dollar and small dollar uh, uh, people who don't want to see a, another Trump. Uh, candidacy necessarily. Um, you could very easily see that scenario uh, that that David was talking about, where some of the others just run out of steam, come to fruition if you know a few primaries and people people around the around the country essentially are like, okay, it's Trump or DeSantis, so which one? Uh, and and the money dries up for some of the others. Well, look, I, I want us to talk next about the Senate, which is another very important thing that's going to be happening in twenty twenty four. Well, the Senate is. An ongoing thing that's happening. I, we have we have reporters there quite often, but uh, the race to control the Senate is going to be important in 2024. But very quickly before we 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 change tracks, let's talk a little bit about Mike Pence in Iowa. I, David, you had some great reporting about this. Um, he's uh, Mike Pence, Iowa. You traditionally associate with the socially conservative candidate, but if I recall correctly, after a bit of a kerfuffle 
Rick Santorum. He was the socially conservative candidate in 2012. He won Iowa. Mike Huckabee, in two, that was 2012, 2008, Mike Huckabee. Um, you have sort of that kind of candidate winning, and it would make sense that Pence would be focusing on Iowa, among other states. He's a former vice president. What What is there to say about what Mike Pence is trying to do and what his campaign looks like? And for for a former vice president possibly running against his old boss, it seems like this story for now has been flying a little under the radar, but he's he's laying the groundwork to to try to make a, a real push for this, no? Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I think Pence is, is <laughs> people will laugh at this, but I think he's kind of interesting because you've never had <laughs> you've never had a vice president um on the cusp of running against the president whom he served right and so you know we we kind of take it for granted pence had a very public uh bitter break with trump over trump's handling of the 2020 election and 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 the former president's insistence that uh, mike pence was emperor and could overturn the election and do whatever he wanted um but you know trump is now a candidate Pence is, I think, very likely to run. And I, I can't remember the last time we saw this. So, you know, Pence has a lot of name ID. He's got a lot of problems with the populist base of the party uh, because he's really a Reagan era three stool Republican, right? Social conservative, fiscal conservative, national security hawk. And even though on social issues that might position him uh, to be a culture warrior. He's not a warrior by nature. He's sort of a happy warrior. You know, his famous saying that he used to tell us all the time when he served in Congress was that he was a conservative, but he wasn't angry about it. And for a lot of the Republican base and the Democratic base for that matter, but for a lot of the Republican base, they want somebody to channel their anger. They want somebody to channel their concern in a way that's visceral. And Pence is principled on those issues, but he's not necessarily an angry, visceral guy. Um, what's interesting about this week in Iowa is, number one, he deliberately chose to go to Iowa on Wednesday, the same day that Nikki Haley's announcing. Nobody may care anymore, but they have this very intense rivalry. Uh, the Pence political operation recently uh, hired somebody away from the Haley political operation. The Haley operation insists that they didn't really hire him away. You know, he was going to leave anyway, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the other thing I think to watch with Pence in Iowa this week is that he's launching a grassroots campaign through his political nonprofit, Advancing American Freedom, that has to do with, uh, as they like to say in the quotes, educating uh, the public about the need for parental rights in public schools. Right. So Pence is getting himself involved in this debate over how how involved parents are allowed to be over what their kids are learning in public schools and what the curriculum is. This, by the way, is a very big deal right now in Republican politics. We're very used to the abortion issue. We're very used to gun rights. We're very used to, you know, fiscal issues. And in and, and these days, trade in China and, and, you know, jobs in any election is a big deal. But right now coming out of COVID, um, with this uh, new focus on public school curriculum and, you know, what many Republicans believe is a, a woke agenda being pushed by the teachers unions and critical race theory being taught in schools. 
Um, this has become a big deal. There's a lot of grassroots energy around it, and Pence is trying to tap into it. Whether he succeeds, of course, is another question. Now, no, we've got a, about- a, a total another question. But by the way, this is not an issue that we discussed four years ago or eight years ago. I mean, this right. is a brand new issue coming out of the pandemic. And I think it's going to stick around at least for a couple of cycles, if if not more. One one other thing worth noting on that particular subject, and this is something you reported, David, is that, I mean, this is another issue that that in theory plays to the favor of Ron DeSantis, that there's this, uh, David reported, I, I've lost all track of, of time, but I think it was like late last week, reported about this, this group Moms for Liberty that has sprung up basically uh, in the wake of um, the the kind of going back to school fights of of the the kind of uh, long slow rocky end of end of the COVID pandemic, um, uh, but has now expanded to to kind of a lot of these other uh, education related uh, uh, policy issues like the the CRT and things like that. And they're they're a major player, and they have they ha- they are kind of concentrated in some of these early states. Um, a lot of offices in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and they really like Ron DeSantis. So, uh, so that's that's a place where he's going to definitely play as well. Yeah, Moms for Liberty—that's a great name for a group. Because I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I felt like my mother was very much against my liberty, my ability to go out when I wanted, to eat what I wanted, you know, to do whatever I wanted. I totally would have donated my my lunch money to a group like that endorsed mothers who supported more liberty. Uh, but I guess maybe that's a little bit of a different thing. So anyway, look, let's uh, final final 10 minutes or so here. Let's talk about the Senate. Um, there are a billion races. We've been already planning where our reporters are going to be going. We're developing sources as dispatch members. You guys will see the fruits of that. And by the way, if you're not already subscribe to the dispatch politics newsletter, it's right there on the site with the list of our newsletters. It seems like every time I, I read the copy before it goes out, there's like a new scoop in every item that we're that we're writing or it's sorry, in every section of the newsletter. There's there's just some new great information and we're putting a tremendous amount just combined decades of reporting experience into this thing. Um, and we'll be covering the Senate. So don't at all think of this as a comprehensive Senate conversation. That's not the case at all. But just a couple of interesting stories that we were talking about. Let's. Uh, Audrey, why don't we start with Diane Feinstein? Um, I, I looked this up recently, and there was actually a time in my life where Diane Feinstein was not a senator from California. It was a few months, and there was actually a Republican, if you believe it. Uh, but that's how long she, Diane Feinstein, has been in the Senate so long that Republicans were dominant, largely dominant in California when she was first elected in '92. Um, first, why don't we talk about what happened today? Uh, Diane Feinstein. Uh, let's Audrey take take a take everybody through in case they missed it if they're not following sure. this as, as closely. Just what the heck happened today on the Hill? Sure. So she releases this statement saying that she's going to retire, um, or excuse me, that she will not be running for re-election, but that she will serve out the rest of her term um, through January of 2025. Um, minutes after that statement was released, um, reporters naturally swarm her and want to ask her about. Uh, that decision. And she says, quote, I haven't made that decision. I haven't released anything. And then a staffer interrupts her and says, um, you know, Senator, we just released a statement announcing that you are not seeking re-election. And she said, quote, you put out the statement. I didn't know they put it out. Um, And so that was kind of a tough final moment for her staff, I think. Um, 
you know, she's dealt with questions about her mental acuity for quite some time. She's 89 years old. She's going to be 91 when she officially retires. She also lost her husband um, this past year. Um, I'll never forget, this is one of the most formative moments for my reporting career on the Hill about, you know, six, eight months ago. Um, Gavin Newsom announced that they'd be lifting that he'd be lifting the pandemic, uh, like mass mandate or some sort of requirement. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, three days later, I approached Diane Feinstein about it, and she had no idea what I was talking about. Her staffer interrupts her. Um, I decided to tweet out the conversation. Um, and then I went up to a couple, you know, mainstream reporters, and they were like, oh, yeah, we don't really ask her tough questions because she doesn't really know what's going on. Um, and we consider it kind of rude to ask her questions. Um, that was just kind of an interesting moment because obviously it's really difficult to report on these things, but also you know, you could argue that her constituents have a right to know what's going on. Um, but yeah, really tough moment, I think, for her staffers today. Yeah, and is a, if any of you, I mean, I'm sure many people watching and maybe some of you all I'm talking to now, you might have had a, fam, a family member who's gone through something similar. And that it, you know, there are moments where it's quite tremendously sad. There are also moments where, frankly, maybe I just have a family with a dark sense of humor. It's kind of funny you know, and your your grandpa's talking about his girlfriend from when he was 15 and your grandma maybe doesn't like that, that sort of thing. But it's it's a just, it, it's occurring on a different level when this is a national political figure, right? I mean, I remember I was saying earlier to some folks at the dispatch, when I was in high school, I saw Diane Feinstein, I'm from California, I saw Diane Feinstein speak. And I just remember thinking as a teenager, wow, she's so old and she's a senator, that's crazy. And I was in high school a long time ago, you know, and, and she's still here. And, uh, David, another uh, a fellow Californian uh, who grew up, uh, you know, just uh, down the freeway from me, you were saying earlier when we were talking about this is now, look, the unless it's possible because California has a jungle primary, the top two move on to the general election. It's a, it is possible, theoretically, two Republicans could get, you know, 13 and 14 percent of the vote. And there are enough Democrats running that somehow two Republicans go and it's a Republican senator from California. But in all reality, it's overwhelmingly likely that there will be another Democrat. But California is a huge state, what, 40 million people uh, around that. And there are different groups of Democrats, right? There are different factions uh, within the Democratic Party within the state of California. And Dianne Feinstein, is, as rough as this ending has been for her, it really does mark the end of an era. I mean, when Barbara Boxer left office, that was sort of she'd come in at a similar time that was about eight years ago or seven years ago and now uh you know when jerry brown left office and cleared the way for gavin newsom and feinstein was sort of the last one what is it what does it mean for the democratic party in perhaps the most important state for democrats it certainly sends the most democrats to congress out of any state it punches above its uh not not punches above its weight but it's an important state what does it mean that feinstein's career has ended you know, she really was a, a trailblazer and just a heavyweight in California politics, influential in California, known in California long before she was elected to the U.S. Senate. Uh, and during her years in the Senate was a very influential figure, was one of those elder statesmen, um, elder states woman, women, long before you would have thought of her as uh, elder states woman status. I mean, I, I've thought of her 
uh, sort of for years in the same way I thought about uh, Senator Ted Kennedy. And I, I covered the Senate uh, when Ted Kennedy was alive and still a very influential figure. And Dianne Feinstein was one of those senators that as a reporter, and Audrey was talking about this, you know, you, you approach her in the hallway and she took every question. She took it confidently and whatever she said mattered. And and she mattered in California. But, you know, from a California perspective for, you know, for people like us, she's sort of a throwback to California, the California politics of old, where you could be a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican. But at the end of the day, you you had this pragmatic streak and this streak where you were going to get things done and you were going to work across the aisle because that's what voters in California wanted and expected. And that's what the politics dictated. I, I joked a few years ago, because I'm a little older than you, Adam, but if somebody would have told me um, in you know 1980 that you know one day Jerry Brown will be the most conservative elected statewide official in California, I would have laughed you out of the room, right? Governor because I, Moonbeam. You know, Jerry, 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 you know, Governor, liberal Governor Moonbeam was the reason why California ended up with Prop 13, which capped property taxes and property tax increases at, you know, 2% of value per year, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because of his liberal policies. Years later, he ends up governor again, and he's the only one stopping a Democratic legislature from just doing whatever the heck it wanted. So Feinstein is of that school, very liberal, liberal on social issues, but pragmatic and what you would call center left, not left left. And now what you're going to have with this primary between uh, representatives Katie Porter and Adam Schiff is a race to the left, and particularly because of the top two, um, they know that they're going to have two bites at the apple here, right? All they have to do is advance to the general, and they can fight it out again. We've seen this with other Democrats, and I think it's going to be a very interesting race. Absolutely. And, you know, again, not from any partisan position. I'm not a registered Republican or anything like that, but I would just as a someone who appreciates chaos politically, I would love for two Republicans to somehow advance in California and watch the jungle primary system immediately disappear. But that's going to be a critical one. I, look, I wish we had another hour to talk about all the other uh, Senate races and topics that we we discussed about possibly talking about on the call today. But uh, thanks, everybody, uh, for coming on. And you know, if you're a, a dispatch member, keep your eye out for the, the dispatch politics newsletter. Again, can't recommend it highly enough. It's it's twice a week now. It could be, uh, a, you know, in, in the in the future, it will be uh, more frequent, but it's deeply reported. It's not hot takes. It's not just who's up, who's down today, but it's a really well-informed uh, look at what, what's happening in politics today. And that's going to be for critical house races critical Senate races, and of course, the 2024 presidential race. So with that, I think we're going to wrap it up. But really quickly, let's just get one, uh, one quick question uh, from Paul. Paul Zimmerman says, is, Aubrey, is Audrey on the other side of the table from Andrew? I see the same liquor cabinet. So I knew someone was going to Yeah, let's really quickly address these liquor cabinet truthers. It would, it would be remiss if we didn't address this uh, unsavory and unnecessary rumor. Yeah, okay. It's, clearly, that's not the case. Uh, and even if it were, it wouldn't matter. Uh, we're all buddies here at the dispatch. But uh, no, everybody's uh, in, a, in a separate place. I'm still in the offices. 
Drucker's on the ground in South Carolina, and uh, Andrew and Audrey will be reporting out of D.C. like they do every day. When uh, you're when you're in your 20s and you're living in the D.C. area, apartments are small, and there's only so many places to stick both the webcam and the liquor cabinet. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason. I mean, and there's a reason that I'm here in the office and not in my 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 tiny little place right around the corner from the office. So anyway. Uh, everybody, th- thanks for joining us, uh, Audrey, Andrew, David, uh, and also the members. Appreciate you guys, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be back next week with even more. And uh, for those of you who I, I don't think there's anyone who just watches Dispatch Live, but if for some reason you do, there's a lot of great stuff in between in between Dispatch Live. <laughs> but uh, if not, we'll we'll see you guys next week. All right.